Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kelly Spivey, your host for the channel today, and I'll be talking to Robert Moss about his book, The Lost Southern Chefs, A History of Commercial Dining in the 19th Century South. Robert is the author of several other books centered on Southern foodways and is a contributing writer to Garden and Gun, Local Palate, and Southern Living, among many others. Welcome, Robert. It's really great to have you here today. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Kelly. I'm glad I could join you. Yeah. So I want to get started by kind of getting to know you a bit better. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and what drew you to write this book? Yeah, actually, um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm in Charleston, South Carolina, and have been in, you know, basically South Carolinian all, all my life. Grew up in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, I come to the food writing from a, the academic world um, originally, though I am not an, uh, an academic these days. I, I did get a PhD uh, in English from the University of South Carolina. And while I was there, I got uh, working on that, I got much more interested in history and ended up sort of doing a combination literature and history type, type of uh, dissertation and uh, was really getting big into food history. I've always loved eating and cooking. And um, I sort of got into first uh, to the barbecue route, um, started uh, researching the history of barbecue after I f- was finishing up at, at uh, South Carolina and ended up writing a book, uh, Barbecue, the History of American Institution was my, my first sort of food history book. And then that led me much more into all things uh, Southern. Um, uh, all, all types of Southern foods. Um, after I moved to Charleston, which is a wonderful uh, restaurant city, culinary city, I uh, sort of stumbled into a gig as the restaurant critic for the Charleston City Paper. And that's led to now I'm the restaurant critic for the Post and Courier, which is the uh, the daily newspaper here. So I've done a mix of, of history and then modern restaurants, eating a lot of uh, a lot of things. And that sort of led me down, down various paths. Um, in terms of the Lost Southern Chefs, that's that's what I got into that through all my other historical research, including um, the barbecue book. When I was was uh, actually, we, I did a revised version of that in 2020, uh, second edition, and went back and did some more research and was really trying to fill in the gaps uh, in the story. And I uncovered all these barbecue cooks uh, in the 19th century, mostly African American men who um, really hadn't been written about. I wrote about that in the uh, revised edition, but those guys both worked in restaurants as well in Augusta, Georgia. And that sort of got me a little more into the restaurant uh, scene. I wrote a book called Southern Spirits that came out, I think in 2016. And in the course of writing that, I came across uh, John Dabney and Jim Cook, who um, were the great julep makers of Richmond, Virginia. And I wrote about the the Virginia style 19th century uh, mint julep uh, in Southern Spirits. But they also worked in restaurants that had very interesting careers and very little had been written about them. And then the more I dug into it, uh, the more I started discovering that people really hadn't written about restaurants in the South. In fact, um, most of the things written about Southern food in the 19th century sort of almost denied that there were restaurants, you know, that gentlemen didn't prefer to, you know, stay uh, apparently at, you know, at plantations when they were traveling with friends and all that. But, um, but I kept finding all this interesting stuff about restaurants and um, that led to, to the Lost Southern Chefs and really trying to tell a story of uh, dining in the South um, that hasn't been told. The lots have been written about dining in the home, uh, whether that's on the plantation or just, you know, in small home kitchens, um, a lot of focus on that. There's been a lot of recent 
writing about sort of rediscovering Southern ingredients, rediscovering the African roots of so much of, of Southern food. But no one had really ever looked at the cities and at the commercial dining, what was happening in hotels and restaurants and saloons and, and those kind of places. And so I uh, dug into it and found a lot of material and ended up with uh, with a book. Yeah, I do want to talk a little bit before we like really get into the book about the research that you did. Um, you know, towards the end of the book, you talk a little bit about storytelling and myth making and mm-hmm. who's telling these stories. How are these stories getting told? Um, what was it like to do research for a book like this? Um, it It's very difficult, actually, uh, and, and can be. Well, I always call it falling down the rabbit hole, but it can be both maddening, but also really compelling at the same time when you sort of, because there's so little has been written in sort of traditional history type texts about 19th century food that you really have to go back to a lot of primary sources and in particular newspapers, you know, um, if you're doing biographies of politicians or, or you're writing about political history, there's you know archives full of everybody's papers and manuscripts and letters and all that. Um, Restaurateurs from the 19th century did not leave their papers to archives. Uh, many of them couldn't even couldn't even uh, read and write. Um, there were very few letters surviving. So it was really a, a process of going and just really digging and finding one little fact and one little nugget, and it could just be a like a two line newspaper ad, or it could just be a reference in somebody's travel log. Um, and really had to kick all these little pieces and, and sort of stitch them together and uncover, you know, sort of make a start identifying patterns and, and, and create a narrative out of, out of lots and lots of scraps. Um, though I did luck into a few very helpful manuscripts and, and, um, and letters that, that did, tell a much more comprehensive piece of the story, but a lot of it was sort of detective work, I, I guess you would say, putting together a lot of different clues to, to create a story that, yeah, that that sort of has a beginning, a middle, and an end. A lot of reading between the lines. <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> um, so let's go ahead and just dive into the book. Uh, it starts in Charleston. Mm-hmm. Uh, is Did you decide to start with Charleston because it's close to you or was there a historical reason that you wanted to start there? Yeah, I think a little bit of both. Um, in part, you know, I, I'm in Charleston. I've been, uh, been here since, gosh, 2002. So, uh, over, over 20 years. So I'm sort of, you know, very close to it, but at the same time, it is sort of Charleston was sort of the leading Southern city. It was the largest city in the South, the wealthiest city in the South, up until the 1820s, 1830s, when it began to be, be eclipsed by New Orleans and Baltimore and, uh, and D.C. Um, so Charleston really was where a lot of the early trends started. And, and so it was a good place to begin the story. Um, you know, I really do begin. It's, it's larger than the 19th century, though. I sneak into the, the 18th century a little bit with the Charleston section and sort of talking about how boarding houses and taverns evolved into hotels and uh, and, and, and saloons and oyster houses and all the uh, things that, that we, we, we now recognize as modern restaurants and modern modern hotels. Yeah, there's so much terminology that I didn't realize was, you know, I think about there's a, as I'm sure you know, a restaurant in Charleston called The Ordinary. Yes. <laughs> and I really didn't know how, where that came from until I read this book of all the different <laughs> just boarding houses, ordinaries, hotels. Tell me a little bit about sort of the the dining landscape at this time. Yeah, and it it really, you know, what we think what we think of today as restaurants um, really evolved, I would say, between 1800 and, and probably the Civil War and a little bit after the, the Civil War. So, um, you know, in the colonial era and, and up until about 1800, if you were away from home and wanted to get something to eat, you know, you, there, your choices were typically a tavern or a boarding house. And there was almost the same thing. Um, a tavern was aimed for travelers, but local people could go eat and drink there as well. Um, most taverns in the 18th century were originally houses. They were just somebody's house that they, they turned into a, uh, you know, a, a, a place of public accommodation. Um, they would have a, 
you know, the big inter- the big room on the ground floor would be sort of the common room. The, the, the bar would actually be a cage in the corner <laughs> of the of the living area um, where the bar, you know, the, the owner could serve drinks at night and then lock it up when everyone went to bed. And you can just sort of, you know, think of people sitting around fireplaces and, you know, sort of basic tables and all that kind of thing. Um there were rooms at the tavern. If you were wealthy enough, you could you could uh, you know rent a private room and sleep in it. But by and large, there, most people who tavern guests slept in common rooms, often in beds they would share with strangers. Um, so it's quite a you know quite uh, accommodate public accommodations to uh, to be sure. Um, a boarding house was still very similar, except the the guests were more long term uh and but the same same idea um a little less of the of the drinking function at the boarding house it was much more room and, and and board um but again it was really just somebody's house often a widow who would take in boarders to uh you know to to help help uh you know support herself uh, after, after her husband died um and you know that was sort of the you know and, and the meals at such places were on the proprietor's terms. Their meal was typically uh, at a fixed hour, and there was no menu. You didn't get to order. It was whatever they made for the day, and they would often ring a bell <laughs> at the dinner hour, and everyone would sit around a big common table and be served to sort of you know what we would call family style today. Um, you know, with whatever whatever was on the menu or whatever the cook decided to 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 dish up that day. Um, and then that that changed, of course, very much over the 19th century is. But you have to sort of learn those terms, like you're saying, of, you know, what is the ordinary, you know, that's sort of the daily meal. What is, um, you know, the difference between a tavern? We, it really wasn't a term restaurant uh, used in the uh, in the in the early part of the 19th century. That sort of came along later. Um, it was from a, the French uh, French had a. Uh, a term called restaurant, which were these restaurants in Paris or these these commercial establishments in, in Paris that sold soups. They sold broths, like it you was know, sort of like almost a medicinal healing kind of place that would restore you, hence the restaurant. Uh, and that's kind of came over to the US and uh, made its way south. I think Charleston, I found the first restaurant was probably 1830s, 1840s. So that, na- that, that word really doesn't become common until, you know, after the Civil War. Um, you say so you have to learn all the different things uh, to, to look for when you're going and, and uh, looking for ads and all that. Because if you're looking for ads for restaurants, you won't find any in 1820, at least not in the South. Yeah. And the other thing I noticed, too, was um, the just variety of terms for cooks. I, caterers, chefs, cooks, confectioners, plain cooks, complete yep. cooks. There's so <laughs> many different terms yeah, for, for them <laughs> for sure um yeah and there was sort of a, a a plain cook a meat cook and a pastry cook were three different sets of skills a plain cook as you can imagine very basic cooking meat cook very you know skilled in the arts of roasting and if you think about those days everything was being cooked over a fire so you're you're really roasting and if you say frying you're actually cooking you know, meats and, and things in a frying pan over coals. So that was sort of the art of, of like, how do you roast and master the, master the, the fireplace? And the pastry cook was, you know, making pastry and, and sweets and things like that. A complete cook could, could do it all. Um, you know, this was the era of slavery and a lot of the, um, the cooks were enslaved. And a lot of the ads you see are people who are, are being sold and they're sort of being sold as a complete cook or as a, a meat cook or as a, as a pastry cook. And I write a good bit about, about Charleston, that whole dynamic there. Um, the term chef really was not used um, in the, even though I call it the, lo- the lost Southern chefs, it really wasn't used before the Civil War. A uh, caterer was the term that was probably what more akin to what we would call a uh, a chef today or a restaurant tour today caterer really comes from the french term for a buyer and the the art of the caterer was often the art of acquiring and buying the best ingredients um and then of course preparing them but it 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 was really a reference much more to the the purchasing and some of the great caterers who I profile in the book, they truly were masters of purchasing. They developed these supply chains and these networks far beyond their cities. Um, and I talk about the development with trains and and uh, and shipping and, and steamships, the, the development of this whole network of food that for the first time, um, you could have a caterer in Charleston uh, ordering uh, 
fresh game from New York. They would arrive on steamships, which is what Nat Fuller, one of the great uh, Charleston's great uh, caterer just before and after the Civil War, uh, sort of made his fame for the, the ingredients he could procure. He could get uh, he could get the best game, the best fish, the best vegetables, uh, and, and serve them to to his guests. I'm so glad you brought that up because I thought that was one of the most interesting things that the value was less so in creativity and preparation than, Hey, I can get this really good food. Yeah. It's really interesting. And this is what I didn't going into it. Something that people really didn't uh, at least surprise me is how formal the menus were at these 19th century banquets in particular, but also just at the, uh, what what you what you might order if you went to what eventually became called a, a restaurant very french inspired but very elaborate but they're very it's almost a, a formula or a pattern you you see the same menus again and again and again you sort of have these expectations for these multi-course menus and you sort of had these standards that everyone served so it wasn't so much that Nat Fuller dreamed up all these great recipes that no one had cooked before. It was that he got the very best uh, duck and the very best uh, venison that you could get and then roasted it or prepared it in sort of the ways that, that his diners were expected to, or expected to see when they sat down at, a, at a, banquet, a banquet table. Yeah. And you talk about the first three chapters kind of cover what dining looks like in this area that you've defined as the South. And that includes um, Washington, D.C. and Maryland. And I do love how you define that by foodways, uh, that all these places were connected by similar foodways, like the canvasback ducks and the mm-hmm. Lynn Haven oysters and all these things that they all sort of had in common, because I think a lot of people focus on and rightfully so other ways of defining the South, but I thought that was a really interesting way to do that. Um, so we have the mid Atlantic and that is Baltimore, Washington, DC, um, which is a little bit of a different area. How, how do restaurants look there? Well, the, the mid Atlantic was really defined by, you know, the Chesapeake Bay and the the bounty from the, from the Chesapeake Bay, um, which you mentioned the canvasback ducks, the the oysters, all the fish that came out of the the, the Chesapeake uh, turtles, which actually would be brought in from the the Caribbean, but but so much of that of that cuisine was really defined by you know by was by what what was wild and could be caught uh, there in the area. Um, and oysters and duck uh, just became sort of the staples that you you just had to have if you were dining in, in the mid-Atlantic. And you would get the same thing in Charleston. Charleston had a very robust uh, oyster fishery as well, but but didn't have the quite the fame for the canvasback ducks, which really uh, were, uh, they would feed on this uh, the wild, it's called wild, celler, wild celery uh, in the Potomac River. Um, and yeah, it's, it was supposed to give the, uh, hard to know now, it was the 19th century, but it was said to give the duck this unique flavor that, um, that you just couldn't get anywhere else. So a lot of that, you know, yeah, that was the, the food of those regions was defined by what was found in those regions or the bounty of the, of the land and the sea. Yeah. And you mentioned, um, you know, we talked a little bit about Nat Fuller already, but there's, you know, other other people doing things here. Um, one story that I found really interesting that you included uh, was for Lynch Wormley, who wanted to open a business and didn't have his certificate of freedom and had to hire a lawyer. Like, can you talk a little bit about some of uh, what was the process of even starting a business around this time, especially for, you know, formerly enslaved, even enslaved people. Yeah. And that's the, the um, remarkable thing um, that about the stories that I uncovered is how many of these restaurateurs, entrepreneurs were people of color. Um, many were free persons of, of color. And there's a whole very interesting, complicated history of fr- free, uh, free African-Americans uh, in the South. And 
sort of how they sort of lived in between these two worlds and how difficult it was. Amazingly, uh, there were some of these before the Civil War, some of the restaurateurs were actually enslaved uh, and, and somehow managed to create a business, uh, a free person of color. And it got harder with each passing decade as, um, you know, sectionalist tension and and there is lots of uh, fear of, of slave revolts and uh it you know the, the, the southern whites really just cracked down harder and harder on free persons of color and tried to restrict them but um yeah you had to you know you you, you uh, well it, it, you increasingly had it had difficulty um purchasing I, I can't remember the lynch wormley story exactly but he had to basically prove his freedom that he had he had acquired his freedom uh f- from the person who formerly owned him in order to be able to you know purchase property in dc and 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 live because if you were enslaved you had to have permission for your master or your owner to do just about do just about anything um i, I write a lot about uh, eliza lee who was a free person of color in charleston and as they got closer and closer to the, to the um, well, and she being a woman had a, a double challenge. Um, her husband, John Lee died, but as a woman and a free person of color, she could not own property in her name. So she had to have a white trustee who sort of would um, buy things or oversee her, her finances. And that became a big problem. She left Charleston during the civil war, returned afterwards. And it turned out that her, trustee had sold a lot of her property and uh, without her knowing while she was was gone and um, she tried to get it back through the courts and 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 failed so um it, it was just a really difficult time and it's a sort of the amazing part of the story is that people who are in often case you know the, the links and efforts they would go through in order to uh, open businesses let's try to establish you know to establish some sort of financial independence was really remarkable and that's actually what drove a lot of the early restaurateurs in the South was a sort of ambition to, to stand on their own and have a business of their own. Yeah. A lot of them seem to be, they start up with hotels. Um, is that, I mean, an accurate. <laughs> so I said that again, a lot, a lot of the folks would, would oh, st- start with hotels. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, Actually, a lot of the the people, free people of color, would would um, start off in other lines of work, like uh, being a tailor, uh, which is what John Lee did, and in, 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 uh, and Jehu Jones did in in Charleston, um, and then you know took the money from that business, and then they would buy a building or rent a building and open a hotel, um, and the hotel then wouldn't necessarily be some you know ten story <laughs> giant building, but would um, would buy you know sort of a townhouse type type building. Uh, put rooms in it, and then over time, maybe buy the building, the house next door, and then and combine them and and put them to put them together. And so, yeah, that was a definitely a, a way to to get into that business. Um, but the restaurant, the, you didn't really have standalone restaurants before the the Civil War uh, and standalone bars. They tended to be businesses that were a little like the old tavern, were a little bit of everything. You could get a meal there, you could get drinks there, you could you could could get a bed there. Uh, and then became more specialized over over time, but um, you know, function of the hotel was to you know to provide bedrooms and lodging for for guests, but also have a have a large dining room. So that was a way to sort of get in, you know, get a place where you could put beds and and rent them out, and then start earning money from it, and then you know expand from there into to bigger and and different lines of work. Um, and another sort of space to dine in that you talk about, which can lead us into, um, you know, New Orleans is the coffee house. Um, you know, we have a, a very specific idea when we think of a coffee house today. (laughs) Um, what did a coffee house look like in the 19th century? Yeah. Well, coffee house, um, you was, is really the, the English term coffee house was, you know, they were very popular in London, you know, Samuel Johnson hung out in, in coffee houses. Um, the American coffee house is a little bit different. It took the name from the British coffee house or the French cafe, which was the the same idea. Um, and, but there's, and they serve coffee, but very little coffee. There's much more alcoholic beverages. I'm not sure how the coffee house name uh, got, sort of came over across the pond, but you start seeing coffee houses popping up in Charleston, and in you see cafes in uh, in New Orleans, which later you know are alternately called cafe if you're t- speaking French, and, and coffee house if you're 
if you're speaking English, but they were very much the high end saloons. Um, actually, I, after the Lost Southern Chefs, I've been doing some more research about New Orleans and really got dug into the, like the distinctions of the different types of of drinking establishments in New New Orleans before the Civil War. Um, the the cafe or the coffee house was the the top the the, the high end upper echelon. Um, the cabaret was one level down, which was sort of what we might call a bar or saloon. Uh, yeah, yeah, these days. But the coffee house was, um, yeah, especially the New Orleans coffee house. It was very elaborate. They had mirrors everywhere. They had these chandeliers and the dramatic lights. Uh, these were all male places, so they'd have these giant nude portraits of uh, either angels or, or women without wings uh, on the on the walls, and uh, they had lots of gambling equipment, you know, dominoes and and uh, and roulette wheels and food, and um, that was really the the birthplace of the American cocktail tradition, you would get all your juleps and your slings and uh, your toddies is what they served in, in the in the coffee house. I suppose you could get a, a mug of coffee if you wanted to, but I don't think a whole lot of Southerners were. I love that the coffee house is, is basically the cocktail lounge. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it, it, it really was. And, um, yeah, it, it, in New Orleans, uh, the cabaret, there's, I found this great d- newspaper article from the, I think the 1840s, 1850s, l- sort of dis- distinguishing, you would not find juleps and, uh, cocktails of any sort, uh, in a cabaret that there they drank wine and they would just drink liquor straight. You know, you'd have your, your brandy or your whiskey or whatever, but you wouldn't have a bartender, you know, mixing and shaking and, putting mint in things or anything like that. That was for the fancy places. And it's actually, they called them the dime houses because you, you pay 10 cents for a drink at the coffee house. Uh, whereas five cents a drink at the cabaret. Wow. And you know what that reminded me of when you were talking about these being like all male spaces, we didn't really touch on this, but dining was segregated by gender as well. Yeah, very much so. Um, and the, you know, over the night course of the 19th century, the saloon developed as, which is a term that really wasn't used till after the Civil War, but the saloon developed as an all-male space. And the temperance movement was, was very gendered as well, which was the Women's Christian Temperance Union trying to shut down these, these terrible saloons that were you know, pulling the men away from their, their families. But dining itself in, it was very gendered in the 19th century, a, uh, your, your typical coffee house or oyster house. I talk a lot about oyster houses and oyster cellars uh, in the book. Those were male establishments. Women, at least not respectable women, would not be seen uh, you know, there because men were drinking and doing all their, their scandalous male things. Um, Restaurants uh, began to develop and hotels, ladies' dining rooms. Um, so if well, you know, women wanted to have a meal, especially if they're traveling, they could go to the ladies' dining room. Now, a man could always eat in a ladies' dining room if he was in the company of a, of a woman, uh, but not the other way around. <laughs> the women could not go into the, the men's dining room. Um, and a man, a man couldn't go into you know, the ladies' dining room without with, without a lady there. But it was a sort of a safe space, I guess you could say, so that... You know, it, Back in the Victorian era, um, so so women could could not be around all the corruption of, of men and all the things that they would do when they're they're drinking alcohol in these uh, coffee houses. Um, you mentioned John Dabney and Jim Cook earlier, mm-hmm. uh, the inventor of the mint julep. Can we say that? <laughs> I, I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say inventor necessarily. It's hard to know who exactly invented it, but definitely the the first. Virginia julep, you know, sort of julep kings of Virginia, the, the famed julep makers. Um, the mint julep itself is much older and long, you know, long precedes uh, Jim Cook and John Dabney. But a julep originally was uh, there was no ice back in the in the early nineteenth century uh, in the South. There was no way to get ice uh, in the summertime, in particular. Um, and a julep was just a mixture of uh, well, it's actually akin to the what we call cocktail today is now a generic term for a mixed drink, but cocktail was a specific type of drink. Uh, there is a very a variation on a sling. So if you take a little, you know, you have ha- harsh whiskey, you want to cut it with something or harsh liquor, rum, brandy, you want to cut it with something. You could mix a little sugar and water, make sort of a syrup and then put your spirit in that and that would be a sling. 
if you flavored your uh, sling with a little bitters, uh, which medicinal bitters, which were developed, you know, back in the in the 18th century, uh, that would be called cocktail. And so, you know, bitters, sugar, water, and, and your spirit is, is is cocktail. If you use mint instead of uh, bitters, it becomes a julep. So a julep early in the early days was often usually made with rum or brandy. Um, often peach brandy, which is a very common brandy made in the, in the South, um, you know, and then steep with a little or with sugar and then steep with mint. Uh, you know, it was sort of a, it's actually called an antifogmatic, <laughs> which is a drink you would drink in the morning to sort of clear the fog. <laughs> so mint juleps were, are often mentioned as, you know, these planters drinking them the first thing out of the bed to, to you know, to, to clear the, to clear the fog somewhere along the line. Um, well, in, in around the 1830s, the ice trade developed, which were guys, uh, like Frederick Tudor who would cut giant lo- shiploads of ice. They would cut them from lakes in the North in the late spring when the, when the lakes were still frozen, cut them to these giant blocks, put them in the holds of ships insulated with sawdust and other things and send them down to the coast to places like Charleston and new Orleans and, and Richmond where they had ice houses. So, so they would build these wooden ice houses and basically try, you know, use, try to insulate them and keep the ice. It, the ice would melt slowly over the course of the summer, but that you, you've suddenly had ice available in the 1820s and 1830s. Um, and one of the early things you did with ice was, well, confectioners would make ice cream. So ice cream was one of the first things they did. And then they would also shave it and grate it up and use it to cool drinks, in particular, uh, a julep. And there's a thing called the hailstorm julep that emerges around the 1830s. That is a mint julep, but uh, served over, the reason it's called a hailstorm, uh, over crushed ice in a, in a glass. And if you can, I, I just have to try to imagine being you know, in Virginia in the 1830s in the summer, there's no air conditioning, you know, there's no refrigeration. You, you don't have cold water. You don't have, nothing's cold. You know, nothing is, you know, it's, everything's room temperature all, all summer long. So probably 80 something degrees uh, at, at best. But then you get this big glass tumbler full of ice with this mint flavored, uh, you know, uh, concoction and you sip it out of a straw. You got it, and people actually wrote these rapturous, rapturous poems about juleps and how wonderful they were. And I think it has to do with the, um, you know, the fact that it was so great to have an ice cold drink in, in the summer. So those have actually developed at the um, hot springs resorts in Virginia, to, which were over on the edge of the mountains of, of Virginia, where the, the mineral springs were. Um, originally people would go there to bathe in the springs, which they thought had healing properties. And then they would build like bathhouse around bathhouses around it. Then they sort of turned into summer resorts where people who, you know, would go and not even get in the springs because they were just going to, you know, enjoy the, the, uh, the mountain resort. That's really where the mint julep, the hailstorm julep shows up for the first time. And perhaps not coincidentally, John Dabney, uh, got his start working at these resorts during the summer. And they would come back to Richmond and work in the hotels, particularly the Ballard house hotel. And he and Jim cook became world famous, uh, for the mint juleps that they made at, at the Ballard house, uh, in, in, in Richmond. And, uh, both were enslaved, uh, men, uh, or at least born in, enslaved men. Uh, John Jabney purchased his freedom, um, uh, from the tips he earned working in the resorts and working in, uh, you know, working as, as a bartender and a caterer and, and later became a very successful caterer, uh, after the, uh, at, after the civil war. And I tell this is a very long, interesting story for, of John, on, uh, John Danby, but they were the great julep makers. They, you know, they made these towering concoctions and a julep that John Danby or Jim Cook made wouldn't, wouldn't be like a little silver cup. Like we think of the mint juleps at the Kentucky Derby. These were multi-person drinks served in these giant chalices. And if you ever see pictures of them, they're just huge. And they would, it'd be ice cold. You know, so they would chill the, the, the glass or the, or the metal chalice. And then they would put ice, like, like, you know, designs, artful designs, uh, flowers and all that, you know, made from ice on the side. They would load it up with ice and then they would put fruit and flowers all over the top and you'd stick a big long straw down through it and multiple people could sip out the tulip at the, at the same time. So it was quite a creation. It was an artistic creation and a sort of a, one of those big showstopper type, uh, type beverages. If you got a mint julep at the, at the Ballard house, uh, in Richmond. 
I think we should bring that back. It sounds I, amazing. I've been encouraging people. You know, punch had sort of its moment where people, uh, bartenders brought back the punch bowl and uh, another communal drink. Um, no one's brought back the communal julep that I've seen yet, but I really wish someone would. It sounds beautiful. Yes. <laughs> And, you know, you mentioned the Civil War, and obviously that's going to be a huge thing for restaurants. But before we get into that, you know, you have a chapter called Fine Dining Heads West. And in my mind, I was thinking, wait, we're talking about the South. We're going to go West. But West is Nashville and Louisville. Louisville. (laughs) Like West is just Tennessee and Kentucky at this point, Um, which... I found really interesting. What's dining look like out there? Is it similar to what people are eating on the Eastern seaboard or are they trying to do anything differently? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Um, the, how, how um, similar dine fine dining was not what people were eating at home, but what people were eating at the, the nicest restaurant in town, which could be the dining room of the, of the hotel or the coffee house or the, you know, and then later the, the restaurants. Um, it was very similar um, for wherever you went and it developed alongside at, you know, as cities developed. And so I think I take both Nashville and Louisville in the book and sort of trace their development from sort of frontier towns into cities. And part of the mark of a frontier town becoming a city is it would get a a good hotel uh, so that travelers would have a place to stay, and particularly commercial travelers as they were, you know, coming through town. And these, you know, in the South, at least, the cities tended to be you're not manufacturing hubs or anything like that. They were really distribution hubs. You had all your your wholesale merchants there who would you know get goods in that they would then sell to retail merchants who would take them out to the country stores and sell them to the farmers. And then the the produce flowed the other way. So you'd have cotton merchants and and grain merchants who'd be buying the produce of the surrounding farmland and then you know sending it back east. Um, on the train or on boats and the train really helped develop the, the rise of railroads really helped Southern cities develop as these commercial hubs. So part of becoming a commercial hub was you needed your coffee house. You needed your, your hotel. So people would have a place to stay, would have a place to get, get meals when they were in town doing business and, and trading and, and doing all that. And the Southern commercial travelers, they expected to eat the same thing, whether they were in New Orleans or Richmond or, uh, or Nashville. And so it, you have these, you can sort of see the evolution from what you, know, you might think of as frontier cooking, sort of rough, you know, chops and uh, fried things and, and, and that type of stuff into the type of oysters and duck and venison and game and all the things that you would expect to see. Uh, if you're in an Eastern city, I, I write, I write a lot about the rise of the oyster trade and, and the wild game trade um, in, in, in the book. And that was driven a lot by the express companies, uh, which is an interesting uh, development. We all know American express today as um, the, the you know financial <laughs> services company, but it started off truly as an express company, which would be shipping things in the early days of the railroad. You couldn't put, a big crate on the railroad in New York and ship it to Louisville because there was no train line that went straight from New York to, to Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, it was a patchwork of, of trains and they didn't have the same gauge tracks. So you, you know, they didn't all meet up. So you'd have to ship it to one place and then put it onto a wagon and then, you know, take it to another train line and, and, and then take it to a boat somewhere. And then, so these express companies developed that where guys would basically, um, take a trunk and a big you know, canvas bag and they would travel from wherever to wherever, from New York to Buffalo or New York to, uh, to Louisville, Kentucky, and would take letters and small things. And so some of the early things that they were taking were these gourmet food items uh, and you know, delivering you know, cans of oysters from the East Coast to the mountains of, of Kentucky, which is sort of crazy. Um, and then that developed over time into special express trains that actually had um, different gauge wheels on them so they could put a boxcar on a train in in baltimore loaded up with oysters on ice and then 
you know, ship it. And when they would, it met a different train line, it would switch to the other train. They'd change the width of the, of the wheels and they would eventually get it to, uh, to Louisville. And I, I have some, uh, some great uh, advertisements from the 1850s from some of these early coffee houses and, and hotels in Louisville announced that they just got a, a, show, a shipment of fresh oysters from Baltimore via express train. And the newspaper editors would go crazy and make a big deal out of it. And everyone would go eat, eat oysters, uh, you know, in the middle of Kentucky that would have been shipped from uh, shipped on ice uh, all the way from Baltimore. I mean, it makes sense then why it was so valued to be able to get things as opposed to necessarily making something. Yeah. Yeah, we, it's so it's it's so hard, and you know, even though I've sort of immersed myself in the history, yeah, I still have to remind myself how different it was back then. With no artificial refrigeration, everything was very very seasonal. Um, you know, you you couldn't get tomatoes in you know in the in the depths of winter. You know, it, we're so used to now. We just go to the grocery store and everything's there. But you know, there are all these rapturous rapturous moments in the newspapers when the first uh, whatever of the season arrives, the first shad, which is a whole story, uh, the the fish called shad. Um, there was a big deal when the first ones were available, or when the first uh, green peas of spring uh, could could be had, and people would go, you know, have these these big feasts and eat all the early lettuces and everything because it'd been months uh, since they've had fresh green vegetables because you can't grow them, you can't get them uh, in you know in December in in the middle of Kentucky because you know there is no shipping food in from California and Mexico and, 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 and around the globe. So we forget about, I, I, I still forget about seasonality and how, how different people would eat from one time of the year to the next. And, and also how exciting it was when, you know, because of that seasonality, when, when good things were, you know, became available. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're talking about supply chains. This is probably a, a good point to talk about the civil war and what yeah. that did to, dining throughout the South restaurant dining specifically. Yeah. And it sort of depended upon where you were in the South. Uh, New Orleans fell to the union very early. was, was, did not, it, it was not bombarded like Charleston was, it did not suffer big fires like Charleston and Richmond did. Um, so it, it, it's restaurant scene survived a little better, but you know, in places where like particularly Charleston, particularly Richmond, Atlanta, um, we, you know, Columbia, South Carolina, all those places suffered terribly during the, the war, physical destruction. Um, even before the, you know, even before the, the cities fell, the food was cut off. You know, the, the blockades early in the war, the Union blockades really stopped um, a lot of the, uh, the you know, the, the trade that would bring food in. Um more and more men were going away to the front. There was little, you know, there's, you know, Great starvation and 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 and, and hunger uh, th- throughout the throughout the South. So most restaurants closed down. Uh, a few I do write about the ones in Charleston somehow managed to limp along, which is kind of kind of amazing. Um, but but basically the the Southern economy was was shattered by the war, as was the restaurant scene. Um, but very quickly in the in the wake of the of 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 the war, it began to rebuild, and um, you know. The economy you know, took took many decades to, to rebound, but the, the people who could afford it began eating in restaurants again as commerce resumed and and the, the sort of new South began rebuilding. You you get a new injection of commercial travel and, and new rounds of hotel building and and that type of thing. Um, so so the the restaurant scene definitely um, rebounded. Uh, very interesting period from uh, eighteen sixty five to. Uh, 1877 or 1876, um, the, the reconstruction era, you know, has been sort of was ignored for a long time or, or was not taught, not, not written much about in recent years, there's been much more, uh, historians have been spending a lot more time on, on reconstruction and, and really mapping out what happened. Um, there was a reconstruction of, of Southern dining that happened right after the, right after the civil war. And for a while, there were a lot of new people, um, many of them formerly enslaved who came into the commercial dining industry, opened restaurants, um, opened hotels, you know, opened their businesses of, of their own. 
And it sort of followed a similar pattern as the political reconstruction, which is there was a sort of flourishing in the 1860s, early 1870s. And then steadily as Jim Crow came or as the redeemers, as they were were termed, as the old white uh, power uh, reasserted itself in in the South, they also squeezed out a lot of the African-American entrepreneurs who had a very promising first decade uh, and then by the 1880s, you see very few uh, Black-owned restaurants anymore. Um, uh, African-American culinarians sort of got reduced to much more roles like waiters and you know working for somebody else instead of running their own. I, I, I write a lot about several figures in the book and sort of track their their career after the war. And it's, it's usually a unfortunate and sort of sad downward arc uh, that you see. But there was a very flourishing period of Black entrepreneurship just after the Civil War, where you you had lots and lots of uh, of men and women um, entering the, the the commercial food world and opening businesses and uh, and and really sort of helping get the Southern dining scene sort of back on its feet. Yeah, and we you know we talked about um, you know Eliza Lee returning and and her property basically being sold, and there were quite a few examples of that. Um, where following the Civil War, people would come back and either their property had been somehow tied up in Confederate money, which was had no value anymore, or you know their trustee had just made some financial decisions for them. Um, it seems like, like you said, it was really difficult to come back and establish a restaurant or, or a catering business. Um, but, but some did. Um, Yeah, many, many did actually. Um, and again, it's this sort of some of the the remarkable sort of just the drive that some of these entrepreneurs had. Um, I write a lot about Nat Fuller in the, in the book, um, who was Charleston's leading caterer in the 1850s. Truly remarkable story. He was an enslaved, uh, a slave man, uh, you know, uh, straight through the Civil War until until emancipation uh, re- reached Charleston. Uh, he had he was owned by a man named William Gatewood, however, who um, actually let let Fuller first establish a game business. He was a game trader at the, at the Charleston market and, and importing game from New York and selling it, and then got into catering. And then uh, through Gatewood. Um, he bought a house, uh, a three, four story uh, house that he turned into what he called the bachelor's retreat. And, you know, being enslaved, uh, Nat Fuller could not own property. So it was technically uh, Gatewood owned the property, but Nat Fuller made all the payments. He had an annual payment on this mortgage that, that he made the payments on. Unfortunately, uh, Gatewood died during the civil war and um, Nat Fuller's property uh, which he had to abandon during the siege of Charleston. He moved up the peninsula. Uh, he moved back down, and uh, the Gatewood's heirs had put the property of the, the Bachelor's Retreat building up for sale. Um, and he, there's, and this is one of the few cases where there's some some really good records that, uh, and they're from the lawyers' files from the court cases where uh, Gatewood was. I'm sorry, um, Nat Fuller was. Uh, suing the Gatewood estate, essentially, to try to get, get control of the property. And the testimony from the um, uh, Gatewood's widow was that Fuller had indeed paid, uh, you know, all the payments. You know, Gatewood, he owned, you know, he was paying for it, but he ended up, uh, bef- you know, and uh, Fuller unfortunately died before they resolved it. So he basically uh, lost his restaurant. His wife, Diana, who was a pastry chef, uh, ended up moving and, Sort of moving back, and you know, rather than running a a restaurant like they had b- before the Civil War, um, was just doing sort of private, you know, pastry chef work for 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 local families. And you see this again and again, where um, the complicated legal status of people of color before the Civil War was their undoing after the the Civil War. Uh, Eliza Seymour Lee was the same way. She she tried to re- retrieve her property after the Civil War, found a lot of it had been sold, uh, could not get it back, and ended up moving with her son, uh, I think, to, I want to say New York, and uh, you know, left Charleston eventually and, and died uh, you know, 
decades later, but, but, you know, somewhere, somewhere else. So there is, it's really a, there's a lot of tragic elements to the story, a tragic sort of arcs to the, the end of a lot of the, the great culinarian stories, unfortunately. And then there were some like um, George Downing that Mm -hmm. get very involved in politics and food, which I found very interesting. Yeah. The, the intersection between, Food, uh, particularly commercial dining and politics, uh, they really came together in the Reconstruction era. And there were sort of two major figures in D.C. One was James Wormley. We talked about Lynch Wormley, I believe was his father who uh, earlier. James Wormley uh, went on and opened uh, Wormley's Hotel which was the nicest hotel in, in Washington. It was where lots and lots of senators and, and uh, d- distinguished guests would, would, would stay in D.C. And so James Wormley uh, sort of got involved in, in Reconstruction politics. But George T. Downing was even more in, involved in that. Um, he, he actually came from a, a restaurant family in New York. His, his, uh, his, his father opened one of the earliest oyster houses in Manhattan, and so, uh, and then George followed in his father's footsteps and opened an oyster house of his own uh, in, in Lower Manhattan. Um, he was very successful at that. And then ended up moving to Newport, Rhode Island, where all the uh, wealthy uh, millionaires were, were building their, their palatial houses and, and be- became a very famous caterer in, in uh, Newport, catering to the, the upper crust uh, there. But then right after the Civil War, um, he decided to move to Washington, D.C. He'd never been south of D.C. before in his life, but he moved there, uh, actually went there as a, a delegate um, to represent African Americans in, in all the sort of Reconstruction era, sort of, sort of like to be a lobbyist almost to really try to, to advocate for, for civil rights and for um, you know, at a time when uh, Congress was trying to decide how to let this, you know, how to sort of let the Southern states back into the union, who could hold office, all that, all that type of thing. And so he went down there uh, and he became very involved in politics. He actually operated uh, a restaurant in the basement of the Capitol at one point, which had been a long running tradition um, and then ended up, uh, you know, having his own, his, well, he maintained his, his catering operations, uh, his restaurants in, in Newport and sort of bounced back and forth, but was very hugely instrumental and became a, a national figure uh, alongside um, uh, alongside Frederick, Frederick Douglass as probably the two most influential uh, black political leaders in, in the Reconstruction era. And, you know, he, he did it. You know, coming to coming to his wealth and coming to his influence through the the, the culinary world. And then there's one other um, kind of interesting case study when you're talking about Augusta. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me a little bit about the sort of testing of these civil rights laws. You have a particularly interesting story of Lexus Henson. Lexus Henson, yeah. Um, a name that really is surprising that that sort of almost been forgotten, um, just because it's so he's so emblematic of of that Reconstruction period. You know, we think of the Civil Rights Act from the 1960s uh, as sort of the you know desegregating restaurants pioneering, but there was actually were several Civil Rights Acts passed in the eight, late 1860s and early, early 1870s. Um, and we're focused on very similar things, which is places of public accommodation, hotels, theaters, and restaurants. Um, and there were in in the 1870s, um, there were test cases made of uh, you know the the federal government had passed a civil rights act saying that you had to you know allow people of all colors into places of public accommodation, uh, accommodation. So people were black men would go buy theater tickets and see if they could get seated, and uh, usually got thrown out uh, of the theater, and then would you know bring a a, a case and then try to get that through the courts. Uh, in Augusta, Georgia, there was a guy named Lexus Henson. Lexus Lexus Henson, uh, his brother Charles, and he were both born into uh, slavery. Actually, yes, they were both born into slavery. They had a white father who was a sort of a prominent doctor, and then uh, they were really half brothers because that white doctor had children with two uh, two enslaved women. Uh, just right after the end of the of the Civil War, they came like a lot of African Americans. They they came from the countryside to uh, Augusta. 
um, to find work, and they ended up opening a saloon. Um, it was uh, Alexis uh, LNC Henson's saloon, and Alexis then uh, his brother later s- split and opened his own his own place. Uh, and Alexis uh, opened a uh, you know a night. He kept moving around, like getting closer and closer to the Broad Street, which is the main street in uh, in, in Augusta. You know, moving from you know to a nicer and nicer location. I believe it was 1875, uh, right after the Civil Rights Act was passed. A, a group of, of black men came into his saloon and ordered drinks. And he's essentially has a choice to make, which is because his clientele was white. And so he's, I think the newspaper account at least quoted him as saying, you know, yeah, this is a white man's saloon. Why are you trying to damage my business? So the men left and then they, um, actually what he did, <laughs> what Lexus Hansen did, it was a lot, well, a lot of more usually white restaurateurs did, which is, well, I'll sell you a drink, but it's $10 a beer, you know, which was a, phenomenal sum at, at the time. And so the men left and came back, but they decided to pool their money and come back. And two of them went in to order uh, very expensive beers and he refused to serve them and, 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 and threw them out. Uh, and it was sort of the, the decision you had to make uh, in 1875. Up until then, there were, you know, that was when segregation was really starting to take hold and become more formalized. And you had more and more business people having to make that choice later than, you know, in 1890s and the deaths of Jim Crow, there was no choice because it was, it was outlawed. But at that point it's more, you know, individual choices that people were making. And, and Henson certainly, uh, you know, made his choice and he went on to prosper as, as a restaurateur, but um, ended up uh, going bankrupt. Like so many, um, uh, so many restaurateurs did back then. Uh, you really couldn't go to a bank and get a loan in those days. They tended to borrow money from wealthy individuals. And they, they would sign a note, and uh, a lot of restaurateurs like Henson got overextended. And if someone, the people decided to call in the note, all of a sudden you could, you know, uh, you could be declared bankrupt, and they would auction off your restaurant, which is what happened to to Henson, and he died a, a year or two later, uh, uh, broke after being you know, one of the most successful. Uh, at least on paper, one of the most successful uh, restaurateurs in the South. Which I think is, is, as you mentioned, the story of quite a few. Yeah. Yeah, it happened quite a lot. Um, um, it, it, again and again, you would see restaurateurs going bankrupt. You see ad, you learn about it because uh, you see the ad for a sheriff sale in the newspaper uh, and they some the sheriff would be selling off uh, the, the restaurateur's property, all the equipment and everything else. Uh, in it, and it was because the restaurateur couldn't make 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 some note uh, about a, a, a promissory note that that came due, and it was forced to put everything up to sale. Sometimes you see the the restaurant be put up for sale, and then uh, a couple months later they're back in business again, and so maybe maybe uh, pulled some money, got somebody to finance it, and went. And you know, bought his own equipment <laughs> in his own own restaurant at the auction and went back and in, back into business because that that happened a lot in the South. It was very precarious to be a, a restaurateur. I mean, that not too different from from today uh, in, in in many ways. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely not a some men some men and women got very wealthy, uh, but a lot just sort of you know made a living and then ended up you know with nothing at the end of their lives. Yeah. And, you know, we started this discussion kind of talking about um, dinners that would be happening around this time, you know, the wild game, Lynn Haven oysters, like these are really storied ingredients that you, you see a lot of like canvas back duck and everything. But that just kind of disappears after a while. And what is it that I don't want to say puts the nail in the coffin because obviously like Southern food is very, has been revitalized considerably, but the Southern restaurant around this time really changes. And and what is it that causes that? Yeah, it's a lots of, lots of different factors, you know, sort of made it so that the 19th century restaurant as, as you would recognize it, let's say the 1870s, 1880s, and what the menu is and the style, it, it's nothing we would recognize today as, as Southern cooking. It's totally different ingredients and you know di- different style and everything else. 
Um, so much was lost from that period. And I, I write a lot about the ingredients themselves being lost. Um, so, you know, you, you can't find canvas back duck on a restaurant menu today. Lynn Haven oysters. Actually, there's a, a company that is now once again, producing oysters in the Lynn Haven river. Um, but, uh, environmental degradation wiped a lot of it out. Um, as the cities grew and, and, you know, as we got closer to the 20th century, um, the Chesapeake Bay was just decimated by pollution. Uh, lots of fertilizer, chemical fertilizer runoff into the, uh, in, in the Chesapeake would lead to algae blooms, which would, and, and um, there was lots of overfishing. The oyster industry was all but wiped out by a combination of, of overfishing, overharvesting, particularly as um, it went from, harvesting oysters from a sailboat with like hand tongs to these steam powered boats that would drag big, uh, basically dredges over the oyster beds and just plow all the oysters, you know, so harvesting all at one time and just wiping them all out. And then pollution did the, did the rest. So for many years, there was no, you, you wouldn't want to eat an oyster from the chest. In fact, you were forbidden for many of the oyster beds because they were, they were polluted. Um, the canvasback ducks got, got wiped out. Uh, green sea turtle. We didn't talk about turtle soup, but turtle soup was one of the prized delicacies, delicacies of the 19th century. Uh, sea turtles are now endangered species. We, we shouldn't and, and can't eat them though. You can still eat other types of turtle and turtle soup is absolutely delicious. I had some in new Orleans last time I was down there. Uh, and, uh, I'm surprised you don't see more, more of it. Uh, but th- those were wiped, were wiped out as, as well. Um, and then the industrialization of the, of the food in, industry sort of and, the, you know, breaking of the season sort of also just transformed what we ate. So a lot of the ingredients were, were very lost, very, very much lost. There are different styles of dining. Um, it's hard to overstate how much prohibition uh, just wrecked not just the American drinking scene, but the, the restaurant industry. So many restaurants, uh, you know, restaurants then as today, depending on alcohol sales, uh, depending on alcohol sales for a lot of their revenue, many, many restaurants went out of business in the 1920s. Um, and we were reopened in the, you know, after prohibition that started coming back, but then you were in the middle of the depression. So you had this sort of 20 year interruption, uh, in American dining and it, it all just looked very, very different when, you know, after world war two, when things really, um, you know, re- revived again, and we started getting a, a, a new generation. So, but that's a, that's a different book of the 20th century, but the, 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 uh, the, the world looked very different, uh, in, you know, 1940 than it had in 1900. Um, I really appreciate the way that you kind of follow characters through the book. And I would really recommend, uh, getting the book and reading <laughs> it to really get into their stories because we've really just touched on like the very tip of, yeah of all of these really interesting people. Yeah, we'll touch on John Dabney on on that one, which I won't tell the story because I think um, it's told better through the the words of uh, John Dabney's Dabney's son, Wendell. That's one of the hard things about writing this book was that there's so little of the restaurateur's own voices that have been captured. You see ads, you see white newspaper writers writing about uh, these restaurateurs, often African-American restaurateurs, but you very rarely get to hear what they're thinking or, or how they looked at the world. But a guy named, uh, well, John Dabney's son, uh, Wendell Phillips Dabney, uh, who ended up moving to Cincinnati, becoming very successful. He was a, uh, edit, a, a newspaperman and was very involved in, um, in, in the civil rights movement there, but he wrote an autobiography um, and it was never published, uh, found, uh, but it is, he tells his, his father, da- John Dabney's story, um, and also tells what it was like when, when Wendell was a young man in, in Richmond, uh, you know, he worked with his father at his father's establishments and at, at the spring resorts. And, and he sort of gave a, he gave a very different picture of it. And so that, I think that, yeah, that story is one that I was able to tell, both sides of the story, both what the outside world uh, saw and how the outside world, particularly white writers, portrayed John Dabney and then how his son portrayed him. And I think it's a really, uh, it's really revealing. It was revealing for me. And it, it, it's a quite 
quite a mar- remarkable story. And I will say the uh, the son's view is very different <laughs> than the view you get from uh, from uh, from the the white newspaper uh, writers and and others who who sort of portrayed Dabney the way they wanted to portray him, uh, which isn't the same way I think as he saw himself. Yeah, I really loved that in the book that specific. Um kind of comparison between the two. And I found that autobiography well into the process of writing and it's just sort of like, wow, this is great because I finally got the inside scoop I was looking for. It'd been so, you know, so hard to try to figure out what these, you know, how these people experienced uh, those those tumultuous years and uh, got got really great insight from, from that autobiography. Well, I wanted to thank you so much for coming and talking about this book. Is there anything else that you would like to add or touch on before we wrap up? Um, no, I think we covered it really well. I just like to, you know, um, I hope people read this book, but others, others like it and dig into the 19th century Southern uh, dining. I think it's a world that we has been sort of shaped for so long by myth and story and people wanting to, you know, tell a story a certain way for their own ends. But I think it's a very, very rich, fertile ground. I think I say in the introduction, you know, uh, I'm following on the footsteps of some other writers uh, like David Shields, who, who really began to dig into it. But I think there's a lot, lot more there, lots more there to tell. So I hope people will read the book, but I also hope that people will keep researching and digging up and trying to flesh out the stories more. Because I feel like I only scratched the surface in that that one book. I think there's there's a lot more uh, there for, for people to explore. Well, thank you so much, Robert, for chatting with me. Oh, sure. Thanks for having me. It's been great.